Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. It's a sad day in Cuyahoga County. One of the last great public servants of our age passed yesterday, Bill Denahan. He was really a giant of public service, probably affected more people than anybody else that's come through the government ranks in the past 40 years. It's Today in Ohio, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn. I am here with Lisa Garvin, Layla Atasi, and Laura Johnston. Layla, I think you covered the Bill Denahan in one of his latter iterations, right? Yeah, yeah. When I was uh, uh, the Cleveland City Hall reporter, we crossed paths, and this was toward the tail end of his career uh, with the Adams Board. I think he retired back in 2017, and uh, I, I really did not realize until I saw Caitlin's story just how many other titles he held in his career. My goodness. I mean, his career spanned so much public service. And Chris, I mean, you you cross paths with him in your in your reporting career too, as when he was public safety director for the city yeah. of Cleveland too. Yeah, right? when I got when to town, city hall twenty six years ago, he was public safety director under Mike White. And, you know, and I, I wouldn't we tangled with him a few times, as you always do with city hall over records and things. But but you always got the sense one, he's a very smart guy. Two. He cared about what he was doing. He wasn't venal to, to just jerk around reporters. There was a purpose to what he did. And as I talked to him in his later iterations, really respected him because he just kept taking on. He was like Tom Hayes. It's just one of those guys that takes on thankless tasks, children and family services. Running that may be the worst job in public service because you're trying to save children's lives and you can't possibly be 100 percent successful. It's a hard thing, but he was dedicated to the kids. And then he takes on the yeah. Adams board, another thankless task dealing with addiction and mental health services. I just, he just kept doing it and you'd bump into him from time to time. I think the last time I saw him was at Cleveland Rising. So here he is 80, you know, 82 years old. Um, you know, I think he was walking with a cane and he comes to this gathering aimed at pointing Cleveland in the future when he'd had so much to do with the, the past, just a special guy. Yeah, you know, yesterday when we got the news and Caitlin was putting the story together, I was looking through old stories about him and came across a, a Cleveland Magazine profile of him. And there was this quote that really struck me where he said, you know, the accolades are, are nice and everything, but each day you wake up and you get to do it all over again. You know, the day starts new and you think to yourself, what, what, what can I do now to, to, you know, to serve the people? And, and it kind of, I mean, it really struck me and, and I felt 
that's something that we can all carry forward. And there was no BS to that. You know, so many people get into government service today to enrich themselves or for the power or whatever. It was not what he did. The sad thing is everybody knows him, knows he painted and was quite a quite a good painter. I mean, reporters have been going to his house to see his paintings for years. And he was finally going to have an exhibit that opens this week. I think it's at CSU. And I was talking to Chris Ronane, who had visited with him a month or, or six weeks ago, shortly before he had his heart attack that ultimately, I think, took his life. And he was very, very excited that finally his artwork was going to be exhibited and he won't be there to see it. Oh, that's... We'll be gathering uh, uh, perspective from lots of people that dealt with him for a, a much f more full story than we published last night. We got a story up just that he died, but we'll be talking to people. So check out Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer in the days ahead for more about this very special man. Let's begin. How is Cleveland radically changing its approach to dealing with dirt bike and bike life riders? Layla, it's amazing. You covered the last iteration of the city's approach to this, and this yeah. is just a wholesale change. I know. I mean, once upon a time, this uh, so-called bike life movement had an ally at City Hall. You know, former Mayor Frank Jackson had this soft spot for the dirt bike riders because his grandson, Frank Q, was was one of them. So rather than, than further criminalize their hobby, Jackson sought to draw them in. He, he invited a contingent of riders to City Hall and started discussing plans to build a dirt bike track that would take riders off the street where a lot of folks had, had found them to be somewhat menacing and intrusive. And, and, and he wanted to give them a place to do their thing and maybe even learn a trade in, in dirt bike repair. But then that plan fell apart because the site was too close to a residential area and there was just a lot of problems with that. But, you know, even with that plan tabled, Jackson seemed inclined to want to go easy on the dirt bike riders. And on his watch, police never really gave chase because that seemed pointless and dangerous to the bystanding public. And, you know, that, however, frustrated a lot of Clevelanders who felt like the city had given up control to these riders who they saw as really completely lawless. So recently, Justin Bibb has signaled through safety director Carrie Howard that changes to that softer policy would be afoot, though they wouldn't give any details. And then over this past weekend, they launched Operation Wheels Down Cleveland, which turned out to be this joint effort among Cleveland police, the Cuyahoga County Sheriff's Office, and the Ohio State Highway Patrol to round up these scoff laws. <laughs> they seized 15 non-street legal vehicles, including two stolen ATVs. 15 people were arrested for felonies and 30 more received citations. Authorities also uh, seized two firearms. It turns out that the way they went about doing this was actually to to uh, approach them before they had even started riding, which which was interesting. So instead of chasing, which I think they did chase a little bit, but they actually did some you know intel work and discovered where they were going to be meeting. And then just sort of ambush them. So that's how they did it. That's a lot smarter. I, I mean, I appreciated the comments by by Blaine Griffin and others saying, "Look, the, the chasing for what they're doing isn't worth it." Although I think two people did get injured, but using intelligence to to cut it off before it begins that's a great way to attack it. And th there was a, a, a paragraph in Adam Farisa's story that said. As part of the search warrant, they collected information that will help them identify future of these. They're seizing the vehicles and making it much harder for people to claim them. If they're not street legal, they can't get them back. None of these are street legal. Yeah. So, so it, it'll <laughs> right. reduce the supply of them. 
Uh, it's just a much smarter way to go. There is a danger, though. Anytime you go in and people have these things, if they take off, you know, if they go skittering across somebody's front lawn where there's a five-year-old playing out front, you could have a big tragedy. And if that happens, there will be hell to pay for the Bibb administration. Right, right. That's always the case. And um, But then, so part two, on Tuesday, city council cracked down on dirt bikes with this ordinance that boosts fines for, for riding unregistered dirt bikes in the city to $500 for the first offense and $1,000 for any subsequent offenses, which is significantly higher than the current fines, which run between $50 and 100 The ordinance also targets noise with $1,000 fines. Blocking intersections with dirt bikes is a new first-degree misdemeanor, and penalties are increased for bikes that aren't properly equipped with the right lights, brakes, or mufflers. So this is sort of a two-pronged thing coming at them with this new way of approaching them on the street with law enforcement and then also hitting them with this these tougher penalties. So the interesting thing to me um, in the reporting here was uh, the change of heart from Blaine Griffin, who was a part of Mayor Jackson's administration when they were crafting this approach, the softer approach to the bike life movement, trying to bring these folks to the table offering them a place to to practice and to ride and then all of a sudden this about face this tougher <laughs> approach and you know Adam and Courtney both talked to they talked to to Blaine yesterday and and asked you know why why are you having this change of heart and it really boiled down to it seems that these riders are becoming more aggressive in in the public that they are they're not um, it's not so much that they just want to ride. They're just, they are they are a little more menacing. Yeah, they are a little I'm more dangerous the, than they used to be. I'm throwing the flag mm. on that. I'm not buying that. They, people think? said back when Jackson was working with them that they were menacing. And I've seen them. They, I mean, they, they're they doing the same thing. I'm not buying that. But, but there may be more of them, and people are upset about them. There's a couple of things with the legislation that are worth talking about. I mean, the part of the legislation that's going to make it harder for them to get their bikes back is smart because it reduces the supply of bikes and these things are valuable. The part where you raise the fines, what, what's the point? I mean, th- th- these are people that probably can't pay the $100 easily, and now you make it 1000 It gets mm-hmm. into all of that justice reform stuff we've talked about. You put them into hell. They, they get in front of the court. They can never get out. Then when they don't pay their fines, there's warrants issued for them. And they, they, they it destroys their lives. What's the point of that? I mean, if the real goal is reducing this, take the bikes away. Take the bikes away. Cite them. Give them the minor fine. But it seems like you're trying to put them into court hell. No, I don't know. I would maybe, agree. Maybe the... the Maybe the uh, maybe this is where the the uh, you know the threat of the financial uh, burden yeah. is it might be enough to. What, yeah. what, Lisa, you were going to no? say something? No, I was just in agreement with you, Chris. I mean, you know, I, I was reading the story this morning where Blaine Griffin says they're terrifying old men and old ladies, and it's like they're here and gone in an instant. I mean, you know, I've driven down Superior and had packs of bikes, you know, just go right by me. And I'm like, hey, look at that wheelie. I mean, I don't know. I, I, I'm I, throwing the flag, too, on more aggressive behavior, too. I, I don't believe that. So do you guys think that Blaine Griffin, back when he worked for Jackson, was just kind of going along with no. with 
you know, no. Jackson's feelings on the matter <laughs> I, because Jackson had such a soft spot for this. Well, maybe. But I also think that, you know, I, there many people expect Blaine Griffin may run for mayor in the next go round. And you and doesn't want and you've got Bib playing hard line with these guys. He campaigned against it. There will not be lawlessness in the streets. So if Griffin <laughs> wants to be the guy that's soft and fuzzy with him then there's a contrast that I don't think he wants to have. Uh, and they, look, the, the behavior's not different. The one thing that's different is the Dodge Chargers that do donuts in the middle of the intersection, but that's not what we're talking about here. That's a, that's a completely new trend involving stolen cars. Interesting stuff. The, uh, the, the, the whole dirt bike, bike life culture is fascinating, uh, very active on social media. I do think it's odd we're not talking about the bicyclists because they tie up the roads too. I guess I guess Blaine would say they're not menacing, <laughs> right? Because they're not young and black. Yeah. Yeah. Hello. Exactly. <laughs> All right. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Could Cleveland be the place where science figures out how to detect lead in water pipes without digging them up? Lisa, I would have thought we'd have done this by now. I mean, we've put landers on the, on Mars. We've walked on the moon. You know, we've we created computers that can do amazing things and video games that look like real world. Although we are a civilization where a big part of our population believes the last election was stolen. So maybe we're not that smart after all. This is really interesting. Uh, the Cleveland Division of Water and other Ohio utilities, along with the Cleveland Water Alliance, is challenging innovators to develop ways to test lead pipes without having to dig them up because that's the way you have to do it right now, and that can be very expensive. So what they did was they built a water pipe farm in Parma Heights to use for research and testing of new uh, innovations. It's a mini system. It's got pipes made of various materials, lead, copper, and steel, and then they're covered over with various materials like dirt, gravel, and, and cement and so forth to simulate real-world conditions. So they issued this challenge last year, but COVID kind of got in the way, and the participants didn't have any prototypes that were ready for testing. They just had concepts. So this time around, they're going to widen the field a little bit. They hope to assist inventors in taking their concept to the testing phase, possibly with financial grants. So this could be a real big money saver. Cleveland Water estimates that there are about 180,000 mostly residential lines that are potentially lead, and they think that maybe 60,000 of them have been replaced, but they're not sure. To excavate these would cost $700 a piece. That would add up to over $125 million. Most of these suspected lead pipes are in Cleveland and in the inner ring suburbs. So this this test farm could be used not only for local efforts, but there's like a national group that's going to come in and use it as well. It just seems odd. This is a basic physics problem. It's an, this isn't complicated math or anything. And I, I was, I, in reading this story, I was fascinated because it's like, we should have solved this a long time ago. This shouldn't be that complicated, but evidently it is. They, they said they've tried... What they tried to to play with the sound of the pipes, and they tried right. electro something or other. Yeah, um, electric and, resistance. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it, it's so it's very vexing. But I, it just it throws me that this is the challenge. It is, and it'll be very cool if Cleveland is the place that solves this problem for the world. Well, and I think that you have to show that it is a problem. I mean, innovators are always looking for problems to solve, and perhaps they didn't really think of this as a problem until it was called to their attention. So now they're challenging people to come up with solutions. I'm betting that whatever the solution is, it's going to be a slap-your-head, simple, like, why didn't we think of that earlier solution? 
Uh, stay tuned. We'll keep following this as different groups try different theories of how to do it. It's Today in Ohio. Hey, Laura, who in Ohio made Russia's list of people who are banned for life from traveling there? I wish I were on it. <laughs> Basically, every nationally federal elected official in Ohio is on this list. There's 20 Ohio po politicians, primarily the current and former lawmakers. Um, basically anybody who's in the congressional delegation. And the total list is nearly a thousand people. That has all sorts of politicians, uh, journalists, business executives. Not every U.S. president is on it, but basically anybody who's spoken against Russia. I was surprised Jim Jordan made the list. You know, Donald Trump's know. not on the list. He's a big confederate of Donald Trump's, and I would figure that Russia might want to welcome him, but he's on the list too. Yes, he is, as well as like Mark Zuckerberg, three dead senators, um, Secretary of State, Pete Buttig um, Anthony Blinken, Pete Buttigieg, and uh, Lloyd Austin, Hillary Clinton also on the list. But uh, yeah, I guess they were not going to be visiting Russia anytime soon. I'm sure that Sherrod Brown and Rob Portman are very upset about this. Yeah, and they yeah. talk about, um, what did they call it? Like, uh, just basically that they have Russia phobia. Like, so I guess they're coining a new term. You're listening to Today in Ohio. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. What happened to the influential group of people that Cleveland Mayor Justin Bibb said he was assembling to help him figure out how to spend the big federal stimulus windfall? Layla, we thought this was a stupid idea when it was proposed. It's good that it's going away. Oh, I was going to say this sounded like one of those really awesome innovative thinking outside the box Justin Bibb ideas <laughs> but apparently apparently it was a little too outside the box for city council because all of a sudden it kind of quietly disappeared <laughs> so two months ago Bibb announced the creation of what he was calling the Center for Economic Recovery uh, this 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 was a city hall based agency that was supposed to largely be staffed by non-city employees whose paychecks would be funded by philanthropic foundations, nonprofits or other outside organizations. And they would be experts who could help guide the city toward the highest and best uses for the half a billion dollar windfall in American Rescue Plan Act funding that the city has received. Then Last week, when Bibb announced all those sweeping priorities for how he'd like to see the city spend the money, the news release mentioned again the Center for Economic Recovery. But then the description of who would serve on that panel of outside experts, it suddenly like only included members of his cabinet. Mm -hmm. So what the heck happened? It didn't explain that. It just, you know just changed. So Stimulus Watch reporter Lucas DiPrilli found that Bibb had proposed legislation to city council pitching this idea, but it had no city council sponsors, which is a bad sign. <laughs> the, the legislation was referred to administrative review and hasn't been considered at another city council meeting since, according to council records, another bad sign. City council president Blaine Griffin told Lucas that was because council is really protective over that money and doesn't want to be perceived as, as handing over control to some group of outsiders. 
And uh, so that's kind of where it's where it stands. Lucas got some time to actually talk to the mayor himself last week. And when he asked Bibb about how his office had communicated his idea to council about the intentions of the Center for Economic Recovery, Bibb kind of gave this cryptic response. He was like, well, you know, originally we thought, you know, we'd run a joint process with city council. But after further conversations with the council president, I guess we're going to do a separate process and blah, blah, blah. And I guess we're not going to do Can I take a minute just to <laughs> so. say how much I like the work Lucas is doing on Stimulus Watch? We've hired a whole bunch of people in the past couple <laughs> years that are just great. He is doing Stimulus Watch. He's got a million good ideas. You know, yeah, he's yeah, great. add him to the others we've hired. We just hired three more. We're at full staff. People want to work for us. But man, he has hit the ground <laughs> running. The, the, the problem with this was that you're elected to make these decisions. And, you know, it's, this isn't participatory budgeting where you set aside money and bring in regular people to help you decide to get them interested in government. This was bringing in all the people that already decide everything in this town and saying, hey, help us spend the money. I'm glad city council bristled at that. It's like, why do you elect city council and the mayor if not to make decisions like this? Are they so unimaginative that they can't come up with ideas on how to spend $500 million? Okay. Yes, the answer to that question is yes. I don't think I need to remind you about how it went when they all tried to do that. And they spent months having these like powwows where they would just get together and try to come up with ideas. And they were thought they were going to come up with ideas that were separate from what Frank Jackson was proposing. And then they both basically were were like, you know, yeah, what he said. So... (laughs) They are unimaginative. Well, then maybe we should and replace I, them and get people that know <laughs> what what the community needs. But bring I didn't think it was a terrible idea to have some experts. To bring in Ron Richard and and that crowd. That's not that's not it necessarily. It was Cleveland Foundation. It was all these. It was all these. Do you think Justin Bibb would have put Ron Richard on? It was this? somebody from the Cleveland he Foundation. He is a smart millennial man. He's not gonna put. The the Cleveland Foundation has its own billions. They, we, they, they, they have decisions to make on spending. You don't need to bring them in to Justin spend Justin Bibb has surrounded himself with lots of bright young minds. So use them. He is, yeah, that's true. But he wants, he wants more. He wants the experts. <laughs> well, so I, I, I wasn't totally opposed to this idea. And, and these aren't the ones who are making the decisions. City Council is making the decisions. These are just ideas. Yeah. What's wrong with ideas? Well, I, I didn't think this was a terrible idea. I agree with you. I disagree with all right, you. Well, disagree. I, apparently, city council agrees with me, though, and it ain't happening. You are listening to Today in Ohio. <laughs> okay. How are some civic organizations trying to make downtown Cleveland's main parks and open spaces better used? Lisa, another fascinating story by Steve Litt. The Cleveland Foundation, Destination Cleveland, and the Greater Cleveland Partnership are getting together to find out how to capitalize on eight major downtown public spaces. A lot of these spaces have been upgraded over the years. They were well used during the 2016 uh, GOP convention and other things, the NFL draft, but they're not used all the time. A lot of times the malls sit empty and and other areas, so they want to figure out how to centralize the management and planning and permitting of all these spaces because they're, you have to go to different places to, to do these things to get permits. And, uh, you know, it's, it's just kind of, uh, it's, it's 
I can't think of the word, it's an onus. Um, so what they're doing is yesterday they launched an online survey to determine what the public wants and needs for these eight downtown parks and plazas, which include North Coast Harbor, Public Square, all the malls, Perk Plaza at 12th and Chester, Settlers Landing, Canal Basin Park, the Star Plaza at Playhouse Square, also known as U.S. Bank Plaza, and the Cleveland Public Library Eastman Reading Garden. And like I said, most of these have undergone significant renovations and are just waiting to be used. So they've also hired Cleveland-based strategy design partners and city planning consultant August Fluker, and they'll be looking at these things. They'll be looking at best practices in other cities like Detroit, Philadelphia, and Cincinnati and come up with proposals by fall. And then again, I said there's a public survey where people can weigh in and say what they think these spaces should be used for and how you can ease the requirements to use these spaces. What a delightful idea. What a good approach to go out and really say, okay, we got these great open spaces. We've invested a lot of money in them. Downtown is becoming more of a residential area, probably more so as offices get converted as they fall into disuse because people are working from home. So how to serve, how to make those serve to build more of a a community center. I hope there's a big focus on downtown residents as they do it. Yeah, and I, you know, every time I go downtown, I notice more people who are obviously living downtown because they're walking dogs or jogging or whatever. They also have a working group of 30 public officials that would be chewing over this, uh, the survey results and, and other input that they get throughout the summer. I'll never forget the first time I saw somebody walking a dog downtown. It was like 15, 18 years ago, and it was the first time because nobody lived down there. Right. Now you see them all the time. It's a very good evolution of downtown. You're listening to Today in Ohio. What's the penalty for the people who cut down and stole a 200-year-old walnut tree from the Metro Parks? Laura, this was a huge international story. The lumber in that tree is worth a fortune, and you just can't replace a 200-year-old tree. No, you can't. Even if you pay a little bit of money, it's not going to bring the tree back. So Todd Jones, he's 57 from Bay Village, and Laurel Hoffman, she's 54 of Elyria, they agreed to repay the Metro Parks $20,000 as part of their plea deal. Judge Timothy McCormick ordered them to serve six months in the jail, Cuyahoga County Jail, but he suspended the sentence so they don't have to serve jail time. What they did is they, they, they say it wasn't malicious. They thought the, the tree belonged to them. They sold it to a Geauga County sawmill for only $2,000. Mm. And the park said that the tree was worth about 28000 And it cost them more than $100,000 to clean up the area because of the mess the tree left behind. It's just like, you know, you got to shake your head. This makes no sense. I wish I could get my hands on some of that walnut. I'm finishing making a chair out of <laughs> walnut that has knots in it. And to get something that's 200 years old, if they're going to do that, I wonder what happened to it. They probably cut it into particle board. It's a shame, and really it's, uh, it's sad for people who like visiting the parks. You don't have many 200-year-old trees out there. Although we did learn when this happened that they have a census of those trees uh, because they are keeping track of them. That's, that's how they knew what had happened. Yeah, and this is was in the Millstream Run Reservation in Strongsville. So apparently it was seven feet from their property, but they always they say they always thought it was theirs and they had no ill intent. But you got to think, what were what were they thinking? They just bad all yeah, around. Just greed, and they probably don't realize just how valuable and rare it is. It's today in Ohio. We've got new presidents at Cleveland's three major colleges, and reporter Bob Higgs talked to them to see if they have plans to collaborate. They don't always. Layla, will these three? 
Well, they say, they say so. The, The three regions' biggest higher ed institutions recently named these new presidents. Eric Kaler joined Case Western Reserve University last July. Laura Bloomberg became president of CSU on April 26th. And then Michael Bastin is currently the president at Rockland Community College in Suffer, New York. And he's going to become the next president at at Tri-C on July 1st. And Bob Higgs learned that the three of them are not only really excited about their careers intersecting in Cleveland simultaneously and, and all the great opportunities for collaboration, but but they're also really excited about the turnover and leadership in general in Cleveland and the opportunities that creates for partnerships and innovation from United Way to the Greater Cleveland Partnership to the hospital systems with, you know, they say that with new leaders in, in all these, new, these organizations, there are fresh ideas for collaboration and, and for finding ways to enhance that pipeline from academia into the work force. So Kaler and Bloomberg already knew one another from their overlapping time at the University of of Minnesota, where Kaler was president from 2011 to 2019, and Bloomberg was a dean for eight years. They told Bob that they've already been discussing among the three of them how best to streamline the pipeline of students between academic institutions so transfers are more seamless and non-degree seeking students find their place but really interesting is the role that they say they hope to play within the burgeoning tech industry especially as intel brings its giant manufacturing complex outside of columbus already case has signed an agreement with lorraine county community college to work with intel on the project and and case would do research and development work while LCC would train technicians. Kaler expects that he could ink a similar agreement with Tri-C. So there, that I found that that was a really fascinating part of the story. I was, uh, I think there's a uh, there's a lot of potential there. So um, we'll see, right? I'm a I little mean, skeptical though, because of, <laughs> of history. I know you were like, ooh, laddie dog, no, rose colored glasses. I, I just think that. You know, but look, let's face it, Case and CSU have a law schools, right? And CSU graduates get better scores than Case graduates do. Uh, it, yeah, that's and, true. And, and that's going to continue to be an issue. I Look, I hope they collaborate, and I hope they work with the hospitals, and I hope they work with the government leaders. Um, they haven't always. And one of the things we're really lacking in Cleveland and Ohio, well, mainly Cleveland, we don't work to keep the graduates here. I mean, Columbus does. Columbus has a program where they try and get people who graduate from Ohio State to stay. Philadelphia has a program. You see it in cities elsewhere. We're not doing it. The, 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 the collaboration between the colleges and businesses doesn't work to try and keep these brains here. So we have all these smart people come into town. They spend a few years here. They get their degree and leave. And that hurts us if we don't figure out a way to keep them like other cities are doing maybe intel will be the the path for that we'll we'll see yeah hopefully all right you're listening to today in ohio we're not going to get to our last two stories that's always a good sign robust conversation squeezes out some stories we'll get to them tomorrow thanks lisa thanks layla thanks laura i think this is it for you this this week right layla yeah, I think so. I might take a couple of days off. All right, you you've earned them. <laughs> or or not, or not. You might hear me Thursday, okay. Friday. We'll see. We'll see. Thanks everybody who listened to the podcast. Come back tomorrow, whether Layla comes back or not. 